Welcome back to the South Harbor Church Podcast. South Harbor is a part of the Harbor Churches, which exist to help people find their way back to God. This week, Pastor Tim walks us through a challenging story of Jesus's two betrayals, one by Peter and one by Judas. As always, for more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, stick around after the message. And now, let's head over to Pastor Tim. First off, good morning. How y'all doing? Good. Yeah, there it is. Um, my, uh, yeah, I told the first service that we uh, um, used. My wife and I used to have tickets to the symphony, and there was this unbelievably kind uh, older man. He was probably low nineties, just an older man. And we sat next to him, had uh, season tickets there, and we'd sit next to him, and um, he like lit us up every time. He was just filled with joy. And after every song that really like moved him, he would shout, hooray. And I just like, even if I wasn't into the songs, I'd be like, I just was excited to hear the hooray from this guy. Um, just such joy. So uh, it's a hooray to see you all. If you are new, I'd love to have an opportunity to meet you after the service. Um, we've got our work cut out for us this morning. So if you're new, I'm going to warn you on the front end, some thinking that we need to do this morning. Uh, if you have your Bible, we're going to be in Matthew 26. We'll have the words on the screen as well, but Matthew 26 and Matthew 27. Um, I want to, so, uh, well, for those of you who are newer, we've been, uh, beginning last December, we started a, a series exploring the life of Jesus as told by his disciple, Matthew. Uh, Matthew tells an account, uh, there's one of four biographies. Your Bible calls them gospels. It's a word that means good news. Uh, on the life of Jesus. And uh, we've been studying Matthew's account. Matthew is the least likely of all the disciples to write an account um, because Matthew, when Jesus meets him, he's a complete mess. He's a, he's a tax collector. He's working for the enemies. Uh, there's very few people that are further from God in the, in the first century than a tax collector. And yet uh, Matthew's life gets flipped upside down by Jesus and he writes an account of all of the details. And so we've been walking through that. Uh, we spent the last year in Matthew, but the last uh, several weeks just in the last week of Jesus' life, and the last two weeks just on the last day. Um, And so uh, that 24-hour block that begins with a meal with his disciples, the Passover meal, and 24 hours later, uh, Jesus is is being crucified uh, as an enemy of the state and placed in a tomb. Um, it, we've been working through this last day. And so our hope is uh, today we'll, we'll, we'll kind of take it to the next place. And then next week we'll uh, try to tie a bunch of pieces together. And then when we come back together on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day, we will look at the Easter story on Christmas. And so uh, I think we'll see some things in the Easter story by placing it on Christmas as we have Christmas in our imaginations and minds. Um, we might actually read the text a little different. So that's where we're going um, But just to recap where we've been the last couple weeks, two weeks ago, we looked at the meal, uh, the Passover Seder, and uh, my goal two weeks ago, it was was simply to show you the seating arrangement of uh, that table um, known as a triclinium. I wanted you to to imagine where the disciple is sitting. We have clues in our text of where each disciple is sitting, and if we know the culture of the day, that tells us some things about... uh, Uh, a message Jesus is trying to communicate through this meal. And so that was two weeks ago. Last week, we went back to the Seder itself. And if you remember, we uh, did this in-depth look at the liturgy of the Passover. And what does Jesus change in the liturgy um, that has now become our communion celebration? Uh, And so we ate horseradish and sang songs and all that stuff. But that was last week. Uh, We followed Jesus from uh, the meal to the Mount of Olives, which is uh, just on the other side of a valley known as the Kidron Valley, uh, overlooking the city of Jerusalem. And then from the Mount of Olives, there's a section of the Mount of Olives called Gethsemane. And we watched as Jesus fell on his face three times and cried out to God, take the cup of suffering from me, um, and take the cup of salvation from me. Um, I don't, it's too much. And yet, God, if you want me to fulfill this, if you want me to fulfill these vows, as Psalm 116 says, I'll do it. I'll drink the cup. And, uh, and then he comes back three times to his disciples sleeping. Um, and eventually Judas comes and with a kiss, Judas betrays Jesus. One of Jesus' disciples betrays him with a kiss. And Peter wakes up and cuts off the guy's ear. That's where we left off the story last week. I want to pick up the story there today. And uh, we got some work cut out for us. Um, lots to cover. Uh, now, 
so we'll pick up the story with Judas has just betrayed his rabbi with a kiss, and Peter has just so misunderstood his rabbi that he's cutting off a guy's ear, and then this mob is moving Jesus away for what will become a trial. Is Jesus guilty of these things? That's uh, the question. So what I want to do um, this morning is I want to take you into the story. Uh, your homework in the story, or I guess your, your uh, work together, uh, is try your best to not just read the text, but to put yourself into the text. Uh, use your imaginations. Try to place yourself there. What do you see? What do you, what, what, what's the energy around you? Like, are people angry? Are people sad? Like, what's going on in the story? We're going to go into the story, and then um, a big block of scripture, and then uh, we'll come back back and we'll go even deeper in the story. And specifically, I want to focus in on uh, where Matthew focuses in the story. Uh, He starts with Jesus, then he moves the spotlight to a guy named Peter, the disciple, and then he shifts again to Judas. I want us to try to get into the mind of Peter and Judas. Why do they do what they do? All right, start with the text. Uh, Verse 57 Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance, right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. Now, um, just for those who weren't here, help us out, those who were here. um, When Matthew talks about the chief priest, he's talking about a specific set of Jewish elite in Jesus' world known as the, do you remember, such with an S, Sadducees, yeah. The Sadducees are Matthew's word for the chief priests, or, or the chief priests are Matthew's word for the Sadducees. Uh, the, this man, Caiaphas, is the high priest. He oversees all the other chief priests over this, this set of Sadducees. Uh, and so we are now in Caiaphas's house, and we read that there's a whole group that's assembled, and Peter's there also. So if you remember, Peter had fled the scene. He had left, but apparently Peter doesn't flee far. He, Apparently, he follows the mob to Caiaphas' house. And we read here that he wants to see the outcome. Raising the question, the outcome of what? Well, this is about to become a trial. We're going to have a trial of Jesus. They're going to throw evidence at it. They're going to try to figure out, like, is he guilty? Is he innocent of specifically blasphemy? Has he committed blasphemy? Uh, And yet there's something, if you read the text closely, there's something really wrong with the trial. Now, let me walk you through a traditional trial. Uh, there was a, a court in the Jewish world known as the Sanhedrin. You'll see this in your Bible in a number of places, the Sanhedrin. It functioned a lot like our Supreme Court today. Um, they saw, oversaw the biggest cases. Uh, so you would have the Sanhedrin would meet uh, 71 men. It was all men um, of, uh, of esteem in the culture. These 71 men would meet and they would oversee a case. Now, the tie-breaking vote was the high priest's vote. That's Caiaphas. Now, here's where, here's where the trial seems to have gone awry. Something's wrong with the trial. What we know about the Sanhedrin was they had given themselves, according to a Jewish rule book called the Mishnah, there is a set of rules that they themselves said we have to follow for a trial to be legitimate. Rule number one that we have to follow is we have to do it in a courtroom. There's a specific courtroom. I'll show you a picture of it. It's actually, it's known as the Hall of Hewn Stone, which I know sounds like a Harry Potter book or something. The Hall of Houston. Harry Potter and the Hall of Hewn Stone. Uh, so this is the Hall of Hewn Stone. It was attached to this larger structure is Herod's temple, the temple that is in our scriptures. Uh, it's attached to that. Now let me take you inside, show you a little bit what it looks like. Um, they would meet in this room. This is the Sanhedrin. Now, question, obvious question. Question, are they in this building for this trial? No, they're in, they're in a, why are we in a, a house of a resident? I don't care if he's a high priest, it's still a private resident's house. Something's wrong with the trial. Rule number two that you're not supposed to break. Every court case had to have all the assembly gathered and it had to meet during the day so that others could watch what's happening. You had to meet during the day. Now, are they meeting during the day? Strike two. Uh, rule number three. The Sanhedrin could meet any time as long as everyone was able to gather during the day in the Hall of Hewnstone, except for on the Sabbath, which was Saturday in their world. Uh, the, the Sabbath day was a day of rest. You don't meet on the Sabbath. Or during a festival or on the eve of a festival. Is there a festival going on in our text? 
Yes, it's the Passover. It's the festival. The Passover was to the Jewish people what Christmas is to us. It was the, or maybe you'd say Easter is to us. It's the main religious festival for their people. Uh, there are three pilgrim festivals in your Bible. Passover is one of them, which means every Jewish person, no matter where you lived, you were required by Old Testament law to leave your home for the festival and come to Jerusalem for this. The, the court's not supposed to gather. And yet there is a trial taking place of Jesus. All I want you to see in this is that this is a highly, highly illegal trial. This is not supposed to be. Back to the text. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence, problem, against Jesus so they could put him to death. But they didn't find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward. And so you got to imagine. Imagine you're there. What are, you, what are the false witnesses saying about Jesus? As you're, if you're Jesus, what is Jesus? How does he hear that? Like, put yourself in the story. They didn't find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Now, did Jesus say that? Yes. Uh, then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us, if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You've said so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his clothes and said, he's spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? By the way, the answer to that question is because your own rules say that everyone gets a chance to speak. Why do we need more witnesses? Look now, you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He's worthy of death, they answered. Then they spit in his face, struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? Can you picture the scene? I know it's a heavy moment for Christmas, but um, Jesus falsely arrested, falsely charged, a legal trial underway, and then he is mocked, he's spit on, he's hit. Prophesy to us, who hit you? Like he's just... Now, Matthew's going to take our spotlight and he's going to shift the spotlight from Jesus in this trial to Peter, the disciple of Jesus. Verse 69. Now, Peter was sitting out in the courtyard. Let me just show you an image of kind of where Peter is. We don't know exactly where in this house uh, Jesus is being um, tried, but we do know is there's an open-air courtyard. Um, there's courtyards around it, but we think this open-air courtyard is probably the one they're referring to when they say Peter's sitting in the courtyard. So Peter's kind of worked his way into, somewhat into the house, and he's sitting in the courtyard. Now, Peter was sitting out in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said. But he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, surely you're one of them. Your accent, it gives you away. Then he began to call down curses and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and he wept bitterly. And that's where we'll leave Peter. Um, Peter will not be back in our story until, he will not follow Jesus to the cross. He will not be back in our story until Easter. It's Easter morning, Peter's back in our story. But Peter, uh, we leave him with weeping bitterly. He has betrayed his rabbi. He has betrayed his Lord. He has betrayed the Son of God. Now, Matthew's going to take that spotlight and he's going to shift it again to Judas. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus killed, executed. So they bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I've sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What's that to us? They replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and he left. Then he went away and hanged himself. 
The chief priest picked up the coins and said, it's against the law for us to put this into the treasury since it's blood money. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. That is why it has been called the field of blood to this day. Then what was spoken by Jeremiah, the prophet was fulfilled. They took the 30 pieces of silver, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. And that's our story. Can you picture the story? We got uh, Peter running away, weeping bitterly. He's betrayed his God. He's betrayed Jesus. He's betrayed his rabbi. And then you have Judas, also heartbroken. He's betrayed his rabbi. He's betrayed his God. Judas takes his life. He's two men who are heartbroken. The spotlight moves from one to the next. It's almost like Matthew wants us to explore these two guys. They are similar in many ways, and they are different in many ways. Okay, now, as we explore the story, I want to go even deeper into the story. I want to get into the heads of Peter and Judas. Can we figure out what is actually going on in this moment? What's going on in between their ears? Now, we have some clues from the text. The text tells us some things. Some things it doesn't. We have to kind of try to figure it out. We have some breadcrumbs that we can follow, but at the end of the day, we have to kind of make, we got to try to figure out, like, what's, what's going on here? We got to make sense of all this. Um, one of the things we talk about often here is it's really important that when we approach a text that's familiar, and if you grew up in church, this is probably a familiar text, that to, to, to try to approach the text in a way that we can read it again with fresh eyes. So we tend to assume a lot of things. Like we kind of, we've, we've heard the story. We, we kind of know what's going to happen in the story. Um, so we can assume a lot of things from the story. One of the best ways to see the text with fresh eyes is simply to ask questions of it. Like, even if you assume you know the answer to the questions, it's helpful just to ask the questions. Um, give yourself permission to ask the questions. For instance, why does Peter cut off a guy's ear? It's an important question to ask. Here's a question beyond, behind that question. So once you find out, you ask the question, you find, there's another question. Here's a question. Why does Peter have a sword in Gethsemane? It's Passover night. What's he doing with a sword? Like, why do you bring a sword to Passover, Peter? What are you doing? What did you think was going to play out here? And then, why is it that Peter, when he's questioned, the question that shakes him, it rattles him, it spins him around. The question that shakes him was, or the accusation that shakes him was, you're with him, aren't you? Now remember, the thing Jesus is arrested for, he's accused of, is blasphemy. He said he'd take down the temple and rebuild it in three days. Peter's not guilty of that. Jesus said those words, so if they, get, if they say he's guilty, even if it's a rigged trial and they bring out false evidence, but Peter's not. So why is Peter so worried? What do they think he's with Jesus doing? It's, how about Judas? How, here's a set of questions that are worth asking around Judas. Um, why does Judas betray Jesus? Now we want to say, here's what I always assumed. It's for the money. He wants that sweet, sweet silver coins, right? 30 pieces of silver. Judas is willing to sell out his best friend for 30 pieces of silver. Okay, that's the assumption. Here's a couple questions. If it's for the money, why does Peter or Judas immediately, as soon as he, as soon as he uh, discovers that Jesus is going to be executed, he throws the money back? And not only does he throw it back, he throws it into the temple. You have to break into the temple. It's Passover Eve. Like, it, tomorrow's a big party. You have to actually break into the temple if you're going to throw it back into the temple. They don't just let you in in the middle of the night. So Judas goes out of his way to throw money back to the temple. If it's about the money, why does he do that? What? Take it a step further. If it's about the money, uh, why? Uh, well, we, know, we know a few things about uh, Judas. One of the things we know about Judas is he, he's the guy in charge of the disciples' money. He holds the the purse, so to speak, for the group. And so if he wanted the money, he could draw from that, that coin bag anytime he wanted to. He has access to it. And if it's about the money, you, uh, what we know about Jesus is he's being funded by some pretty wealthy women. Uh, one of them is named Joanna. She's the, hu- uh, the wife of a man named Susa who works for Herod. So Jesus, in a weird way, is being funded by Herod, which I find Awesome. Um, but, but like, as soon as you cut that off, if you're Judas, as soon as you like, do this with Jesus, you betray Jesus, you sell him out, the funding stops. So if it's about the money, not a very smart strategy. Further, the other disciples seem to trust Judas with their money. In fact, I catch this detail. During the Passover meal, 
When Jesus says to Judas, go do what you must do. You're going to betray me, go do it. You're going to betray me, go. The disciples, we read in John's account, they thought that he was leaving because Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. Their assumption is Judas is just going to go do what he always does and care for the poor. What do we do with that? Um, Or here's something odd. Uh, you remember that moment at the Passover meal, the Passover Seder, when Judas is like, it's not, I'm not going to do it. I'll never do it. Um, notice what Judas says when Jesus says, yes, you are, Judas. Uh, verse 25 of Matthew 26. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. And Jesus answered, you've said so. You're going to betray me. Now, it's easy for us to make all sorts of assumptions there, right? We know how the story ends. We know that Jesus, Judas will betray him. Um, but... And so, so what we'll do is we'll read this and say, well, he's just being really insincere. He's like, oh, you don't mean me, Jesus. Like, or however you say things when you're insincere. But, but like, that's how we can read into it. But, but what if, entertain this question with me, what if Judas is being sincere here? Like, Jesus, you surely don't think I'm going to betray you. Does that change how we think of what he does next? What if Judas, in some weird, twisted, obviously twisted way, he's obviously wrong. But what if in some weird, twisted way, Judas actually thought somehow what he was doing was justified or somehow what he was doing was what Jesus wanted him to do. Turns out that's not as far-fetched of a theory as we may think. Let me give some of the breadcrumbs um, that why that why I want to humanize Judas a bit and Peter. I want to get into their minds uh, and I want to do our best. Uh, now, um, when we read, we tend to read about Judas Iscariot. One of the things we tend to do, especially with Judas, is he's the villain, and so we read him as this two D flat character. He's like the Grinch at the beginning of the movie, right? Like he's the bad guy. He's by the way, my kids have been asking me for three weeks straight, how many more days until the Grinch? How many more? We could tend to read Judas as just this flat 2D character. He's all evil all the time. Uh, and for good reason. He sells out Jesus. He gets Jesus executed, right? Like Judas, for very good reason, we read him as the villain. However, I think if we actually slow down a little bit and try to understand, uh, understand the man and what are his deeper motivations, he's still clearly wrong. And there's a humanity to Judas to say, I think I see why you thought what you were doing was the right thing. In fact, what we might discover is sometimes the way we see Jesus and say, okay, well, maybe we're wrong on our, Jesus would do this if he was here right now, and Jesus would think this if he was here right now. Judas, coming out of his world, I think has a very, I think he has a sense of what Jesus is supposed to be about in this moment. Okay, here's what we know about Judas. Uh, Bible doesn't tell us a lot. Scriptures are pretty quiet on Judas. Up until this last week of uh, uh, leading up to the cross, Scripture's quiet on Judas. Uh, all we know about Judas from the rest of the text is a handful of details. The first detail we know about Judas is he's in charge of the money. So we talked about that. He's in charge of the company purse. Second thing we know about Judas is that he's the betrayer. Your gospel writers are very clear. Every time, almost every time Judas is mentioned, it's Judas the betrayer. They're not only clear about that, they're almost too clear. They say this all the time. Judas is the one who's going to betray Jesus. Again, they really, really need you to know Judas is the betrayer. That's the second thing. Uh, The third thing about Judas that we know from the rest of the Gospels is that he has some concern for the poor. Now, whether that's legitimate or not, um, but it seems like he has some concern for the poor. Fourth thing we know about Judas, and maybe the most helpful thing to figure out what's going on in his head here is his name. Judas Iscariot. What is in a name? Now that word Iscariot, what what do you do with that word Iscariot? Uh, We don't quite know exactly what the word Iscariot means. We have some theories of what Iscariot means, um, but we don't know exactly what it means. Here's the two dominant theories, and I think together they still say kind of the same thing. Uh, First one is that the word Iscariot carries within it a shortened version of the word Sicari, Sicari is a, a Latin word for a specific kind of knife or like a mini sword that the, a group of people known as the zealots would carry on them under their cloak. The zealots were known. Their worst enemies, the zealots' worst enemies were Rome. How dare you come into our land and take away our freedom? Tax us. Put your military on our streets. 
They would, but even worse than Rome were the chief priests, the Sadducees, those sellouts you work for Rome. So they were known to take the Sicarii knife, sneak behind them during festivals. We actually have a record of one of them doing it during the Passover celebration. We'll study that next week. Putting it in the back and walking away. So when the mob, the crowd kind of thins out, there's just a body laying on the ground. That's what the Sicarii were known for. Is Judas a Sicarii holder? Other potential theory uh, that this word Iscariot uh, is it's actually from two Hebrew words put together. The word ish, which is the word man in your Bible, ish, ish and isha, man and woman. Ish, karyat. Karyat is a city or a village to the south of Judah. Now, what, the reason this is interesting to our story is all the other disciples come from up in here, the Sea of Galilee area, the Galilee region. Judas, if, he's, if this is true, he's from the south. These guys have an accent. They're from the, it's like in our world, we have a southern accent, a northern accent. The Galilee people had an accent, and it was kind of seen as hillbilly-ish to the people of Jerusalem. Judas wouldn't have had an accent. But even more interesting about Cariot, I think, is we don't know much about Cariot other than a couple of references in your Bible. Jeremiah mentions it. Joshua mentions it. Both references are about revolt. These people saw themselves as protecting what was known as the Patriarch's Way, a road that ran along the top of the mountains, protecting the city of Jerusalem. If you try to get into Jerusalem, you come through us first. So whether it's Judas Iscariot, the Sakari holder, or whether it's Judas Ishkariot, oh, by the way, the other word is named Judas, Popular name at the time of Jesus. Any guesses why? Judas Maccabees. There was a story. We looked at it weeks on end a couple months ago. Judas Maccabees is the guy who led the revolt, won their freedom a few hundred years earlier, won the freedom. Judas Maccabees. So if you're a man living here and you want to raise a boy who's going to fight, you name your son Judas the Hammer. Judas Maccabees is your like, namesake. So you got a guy, based on our evidence, again, we don't know for sure. We don't know for sure. It's all just, we're trying to follow breadcrumbs. Seems to be that Judas Iscariot is a man who's got fight in his bones. How does the kingdom of God come? The Pharisees said, you pray. The Essenes said, you fast, you retreat, you wait on God, you're patient with God. The Sadducees said, who knows, but let's live while we can live. The zealot said, you fight, fire with fire. They come at us, we fight back harder. We did it before, we'll do it again. Who is Judas Iscariot? Now, this is somewhat speculative, but if Judas is connected with the uh, zealots or just with the revolt party in general, could it be that Jesus comes in on Palm Sunday, crowd shouting Hosanna, Hosanna, the battle cry of the zealot party, waving palm branches. Remember these details? The, the, the political symbol of the zealots. That's the branches that were printed on their coins because Judas Maccabees came in with the palm branches. That Judas hears this whole thing and thinking, oh, is Jesus going to do it? He then goes to the temple, clears it out of those traitors, those Sadducees. How dare you do what you're doing in God's house? Then Jesus leaves and he curses a fig tree, their symbol of the Sadducees. Wait a minute. Jesus is doing it. He's going to fight them. Is that what they're thinking? Is, is it possible that the Judas then makes the leap to say, I know what I've got to do. I've got to roll in this. Jesus called me to be his disciple. I've got to fight with him. And Judas actually sees an opportunity as the guy who's trusted with the bag, the coins, the purse, by the way, if he's a zealot, of course he's carrying the money. You don't trust that to, to Matthew, the tax collector. Your job is to protect the money. You'll, your job is economic freedom. Okay, so could it, is it possible that Judas sees this opportunity and says, you know what I'm going to do for you, Jesus? I'll lead the enemy right to you. During Passover, when everyone's sleeping, I'll lead them Sadducees, the chief priests. We'll get them all gathered in a house and we can fight. 
And is that why Peter wakes up and sees, I gotta, I gotta fight too. I gotta, I gotta fight too. I gotta take. And when Jesus then says, I'm not gonna fight, you missed me, Judas. You misunderstood me. Put away the sword. Do you think I'm coming at you with, is that why Judas then, uh, Judas says, I, I, I messed up. And is that why the crowds then said, then fine, you killed Jesus. Give us Barabbas. He'll finish the job. They'll, they'll, they will try to do this in 70 AD. Now, where do they get this idea? What if I were to tell you that uh, though Jesus has, it's clearly a misread of Jesus, potentially they get this idea from Jesus himself. Hear these words, Luke 22. Odd text in your biblical story. Luke 22 says, Then Jesus asked them, When I sent you without purse, bag, or sandals, this is on the, the night of the Passover. When I sent you without purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, but now if you have a purse, take it, and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It's written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. The disciples said, see, Lord, here are two swords. Good enough. That's enough, Jesus replied. What a weird story. So Passover night, this whole meal, like you got to wash the feet if you want to be like me, serve. And now Jesus says, hey, we're going to go. We got a thing to do. Bring your swords. Wait, wait what? Oh, if you don't have a sword, take your, your coat and sell that and then buy a sword. Wait, what? And then uh, they, they step back and they say, well, we, Jesus, we have two swords. Now we hear sword and we think sword. It's not sword. It's, uh, it's the word is makaira. Makaira means, uh, literally, it means a short sword or a dagger. Uh, do you have a dagger? Do you have a sakari? Bring it. Got to fulfill the scriptures. Bring it. We have two. Why would they have two? We have... Peter, Andrew, James, John, Philip, they're all from Bethsaida, fishing village. We got a handful of disciples. They're mostly Pharisees, fishermen. Matthew's a tax collector. But in the count of all of our disciples, we read about a man named Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot. You can almost imagine them saying, Jesus will follow you. Let's go. <laughs> right? Like you can almost picture them saying, but we're not. Like we still think the world's supposed to be run a certain way. Now, when Jesus talks about uh, so that the, the prophecy is fulfilled, what does he mean here? Um, and is it possible that in this moment, Judas is thinking, I have to kickstart the revolution. I have to do it. They're vulnerable for an attack. Let's follow the breadcrumbs. Here's where I need you to really dial in. I know it's already been a lot, but dial in uh, if you can. I got to get into some... some uh, I take you into the deep weeds for just a moment, um, but I think, it'll, I, think, I, I think you'll find it interesting, because I do. Um, this, uh, there's an odd detail in the text we read, Matthew 27. Let's read it to you again. Uh, verse 5 says, Judas threw the money into the temple and left, and he went away and hanged himself. Again, why the temple? That's, you got to take some work to throw it in the temple. What's Judas doing there? Uh, and then the chief priest picked up the coins and said, it's against the law to, buy, to put this into the treasury since it's blood money. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. Odd details. Why those details? You've been here long enough. One of the questions we ask a lot is, if it's a weird detail, find the elephant. Why is the elephant there? What's the problem here? What's the, what's the weird details doing in this really important moment? Why the weird details? Now, um, beginning... Uh, I don't know when we'll fully reveal. Well, I'll, I'll wait on the reveal for now. But uh, beginning next year, early next year, January 8th, actually, we are going to be launching into a new series. I'll share later what the whole series is. Um, but one of the games we're going to be learning... Could you try again? Not Siri. Series. Perfect timing. Oh, now, uh, one of the games we're going to be playing, we're, I want to show you that how, because how, um, I get the question a lot, how do you find stuff in Scripture? How do you know this? Like, honestly, uh, a lot of the, the best ways to study the Scripture go back to games we learned in kindergarten, first grade. Like, simple games. Like, connect the dots. And where have we heard this before? And two of the three aren't the same. And some of those kind of games. I want to show you some of that uh, using a set of Scriptures. But um, here, let's play this game. Where have we heard this before? 
okay? One of the questions to ask when you're reading your Bible is, does this show up anywhere else in your Bible? The odd details. Is there anywhere else in your Bible that mentions 30 pieces of silver, a potter's field, and uh, a temple, the temple of God? Now, we're clued into one here because we're told it's Jeremiah. But there's another one, same ones. In fact, this other one shows up in, the, in this last week a number of times, quoted. If you're taking notes, the answer to that is yes. Write down Zechariah, Zechariah, the prophet Zechariah. In Matthew 21, when Jesus comes in on Palm Sunday, remember what they say about Jesus. Here he comes. The uh, seer king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That is a quote from Zechariah chapter 9. Now we're in the weeds. Zechariah chapter 9 says, Someday the king is coming into his city on a donkey. They quote that over Jesus when he comes in on Palm Sunday. Zechariah chapter 10. God will restore his people. I know life is hard. God will fix it. God will trust God. But first, we got to deal with the sin in the community. Zechariah chapter 11. The shepherds of the community have led the the people, the community astray. How do we know it? Because the oppressed are growing. They're not caring for them. Now, put yourself in Judah's shoes. Who are the shepherds? The Sadducees, the priests, they're the shepherds. Hear these words from Zechariah chapter 11. The flock detested me and I grew weary of them and said, I will not be your shepherd. Let the dying die and the perishing perish. Let those who are left eat one another's flesh. Sound a little bit like the Sadducees. Like, what's that, what's that to us? And then I took my staff called favor and I broke it, revoking the covenant I made with all the nations. I was, it was revoked on that day. And so the oppressed of the flock who were watching me knew it was the word of the Lord. I think Judas knows the Zechariah prophecy, sees what's happening, sees what Jesus has said about the Sadducees. And he says, ah, God's going to break his staff called favor because the shepherds have lost the plot. Continuing the prophecy. I told them, if you think it best, give me my pay. But if not, keep it. So they paid me 30 pieces. Ah. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter. Ah. The handsome price at which they valued me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw it to the potter at the... Ah. What? Same detail, same order. House of the Lord is a reference to the temple. That's, uh, what do we, does Judas, what's his motive? Get in, your, get in Judas's head. Well, the prophecy starts in Zechariah 9, and it continues. The king's coming in on a donkey. God's going to restore his people. First, we've got to deal with the shepherds. The shepherds, of God's staff of favor has been broken. 30 pieces of silver to the potter in the temple. Zechariah 12 what the Jewish people refer to as the day of the Lord, the day God's going to reclaim a city. Notice what Zechariah 12 says. On that day, when all the nations of the earth are gathered against her, I will make Jerusalem an immovable rock for all the nations. All who try to move it will injure themselves. On that day, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness, declares the Lord. I'll keep a watchful eye over Judah and I'll blind all the horses of the nations. Then the clans of Judah will say in their hearts, the people of Jerusalem are strong because the almighty Lord has, is their God. Does Judas hear this and say, I have to spark the revolution. The day of God's got to come where God cleanses our city. He gives Jerusalem back. The Antonia fortress that sits on the temple itself, the Roman fortress used to torment us. It has to come down. When's that going to happen? I'll kickstart it. Now, whether he thinks he's helping Jesus or doing it in spite of Jesus, we don't know. But it seems clear that he knows the Zechariah passage. In fact, it seems that Jesus also knows that Judas is thinking the Zechariah passage because when Jesus brings him to the Mount of Olives, uh, we read this last week. I said, underline it in your Bible. We'll come back to it. That's now. We're coming back to it. Jesus takes him to the Mount of Olives and he says, this very night you will all fall away in account of me for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Guess where that prophecy comes from? 
Zechariah 13, Zechariah 14, and then, the, and then God himself will be king of the city. In other words, Judas, you're right. Prophecy that it was fulfilled then is being fulfilled again. But you're wrong. The way it's going to happen is they're going to strike the shepherd. That's how peace comes. How does the world get saved? They're going to strike the shepherd. And then Judas sees it happen, sees them strike the shepherd, and Judas says, Oy vey, I, I, got, I, I messed up. Breaks into the temple. They need to make the connection. Leaves the coins. He's betrayed him. But I said in the beginning that there are two betrayals. Uh, there are two betrayers. Judas is clearly the betrayer. He's the main betrayer, right? That's the one that our scriptures are really clear about that. In fact, there may be too clear about that. Um, our Bible is very clear that Judas is the betrayer. Your gospel writers go out of their way to again and again say Jesus or Judas is the betrayer. Uh, again and again. And so often, it's awkwardly often that you just want to read it and say, okay, I get it. I get it. He's the betrayer. I get it. I know. Raising the question, why do they keep saying it that way? Why so often? Why always Judas the betrayer? I promise you that if, from a Jewish perspective, from a, a, an Orthodox Jewish perspective of anyone who knows the rabbinical model, you hand them this story and you say, there are two betrayers, but there's one main betrayer. Which one is it? They don't point to Judas. They point to Peter. Uh, we talked through the rabbi disciple stuff a while back, um, so come back with me there. But, um, but understand that if Judas, whether he thinks he's helping Jesus or Israel, and like he's clearly wrong, he's clearly betrayed Jesus. He clearly missed the plot. It was a very grave missing of the plot. He cost Jesus, it was his rabbi, his life. Now, he doesn't fully understand who all Jesus is. He doesn't fully understand that Jesus is going to rise. He doesn't get that. But understand that to, in the Jewish worldview, if he thinks he's trying to help, and again, we don't know. We don't know for sure. But if he thinks that he's helping advance Zechariah's prophecy, you are allowed to be wrong as a student of a rabbi. You can be wrong. You can mess up. It's actually assumed you're going to mess up. How else do you learn? Of course you're going to mess up. That's a big mess up, but even that is redeemable, of course. But to an Orthodox Jew, in the rabbinic model, you give them the story and you say, who is the betrayer? I promise you, they're going to point to Peter because Peter does something that is absolutely disgusting and wrong to a, rabbinic, a rabbi disciple model. He denies his rabbi three times. I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. I'll call down curses on him. I don't even know him. There's nothing worse to a rabbi-disciple relationship than to say that your rabbi is not your rabbi. Disciples are supposed to be willing to die for their rabbi, not the other way around. And Peter meets the glance of his rabbi after denying him three times and the rooster crows and Peter runs and weeps bitterly, we read, because he knows it. He understands the gravity of this moment. He has done the worst form of betrayal. This would be like a son saying to his father, you're not my dad, right? Like this is the worst, most gut-wrenching form. As a dad, you're willing, you're kicking to a lot of things. But when you're kids, you're not my dad. I, I disown you. Like, that's the worst. And Peter knows it. It's done. It's over. All I have left for me is to go back home and go fishing again. My life as a disciple is done. Now, if you don't believe me, I, I actually think that, that the other disciples also in this moment look at Peter and say, Peter's left. He's not a disciple. There's an odd detail in the resurrection account of Mark 16. Listen to this detail. This is the Easter story. But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified. He's risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. Here's the detail. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. They will, there you will see him, just as he told you. 
Go tell the disciples and Peter. Why does the angel have to say that to the kids? Or to the women, sorry. Why does he have to say it to the women? Because in the women's mind, if you don't say, go tell the disciples and Peter, they're not going to tell Peter. Peter disqualified himself. He left his rabbi. He disowned his rabbi. You have to say, also keep Peter in the story, or the women don't assume Peter's still in the story. There are two betrayers in our story. There's Judas and there's Peter. Judas will become the betrayer. Peter won't. Peter will become a hero in our church. Why? I think it has to do, now hear me clearly on this, I think it has to do with how their story ends. See, one of them mistakes the mission of Jesus for uh, his rabbi, his Lord, mistakes the mission, gets it really wrong. It actually leads to Jesus' death. Very wrong. It's a betrayal. The other disassociates with Jesus. I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. His rabbi. Both are wrong. But one chooses to allow his story to end there. What I've done is so bad, God himself can't redeem it. The other allows God to redeem him. It's that moment on the beach where Peter and Jesus meet and says, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. Now, um, a really important side note here. Uh, I have no intention in this is, is to become a teaching about suicide, okay? So let me be really clear. It's really important that you hear me say this. Um, it's a really important subject. Uh, it's one that we need to talk through. Um, but, but what I'm trying to do in this story is to place this narrative inside the larger narrative of Matthew. I'm not trying to make a grand statement on, uh, on suicide itself. M- many of us have lost loved ones to suicide. Okay, so I would not treat it so flippantly. I really, really wouldn't. Um, I have good friends who every day wrestle with clinical depression and suicidal thoughts. Uh, and so just please hear that. Throwing rocks at them would be the very kind of betrayal of our Lord Jesus that this story deals with, right? Just, just hear that. Um, I'm not trying to make grand statements about suicide. Okay, hear me on that? Um, the reason I tell you all this is I, I think the story is a story of hope in a really, really beautiful way. The, the only true betrayal of Jesus is to believe that there is no tomorrow, that what you've done is so bad that it cannot be redeemed by our God. Because that betrays everything Jesus has taught us about what our God is like. When we started this church 10 years ago, one of the things we said all the time, uh, we printed it on all of our things, uh, like bulletins and all the things, um, was uh, a church to get a fresh start on life. Because what we were seeing in our world was all of these people who were um, who had gone through a really hard divorce and they couldn't show back up to church because of the shame of it all. Or they had, gone, they had made a decision, got a DUI, got an accident, did something, and they were so ashamed that they checked themselves out of church. Like, I can't do that. They'll, if they see me in that church again with her, not her. The story of the gospel is a story of a God who gives second, third, fourth, endless chances Because redemption is never ours to earn in the first place. It was always a gift. And Peter needed to see that. And so did Judas. And why does Jesus stick Judas in the seat of honor next to him during that meal? I think Jesus needs Judas to know what you're, I know what you're going to do. But understand, Judas, redemption is still possible. Judas just doesn't get there. Some of us grew up in traditions where uh, we, we, would, we would agree that, um, you know, like this is all true. We believe that, but we don't necessarily believe it here. You've not taken your life, but you at some point had decided to stop living. Something happened. It's like, I'm just done living. I'm cashing out. Like, um, it's really important as we head into Christmas that we recognize that the heart of our gospel is that your sins are forgiven The reason we come to a table, the reason they came to that first Passover table was that Jesus changed the liturgy on. They came to the table with the lamb as a way of remembering that that lamb somehow, 
and we'll talk about this next week, somehow that lamb, uh, their life stands in place of what I deserve. And so I can come to the table with all of my junk and I can walk away knowing that I'm forgiven. We humans are tactile people. Sometimes we need to see it. We can try to just tell ourselves true things and visualize it, but sometimes we actually need to come to a space, enter into it, and take a little piece of bread and dip it into some juice and be reminded that the penalty's already been paid. Christ already died. You don't have to kill yourself again and again and again for what you did. And walk away believing you've been redeemed. On that Passover night, what Jesus did was he said that all of these rituals you do to remember that God has forgiven you, because the the sacrifices were never about what God needed from us. It was never to appease an angry God. Uh, The prophets are clear on this. You don't sacrifice. I don't need your animals. I don't need to smell them. They were always for us so that we would know that we are free. In a world that was constantly cutting themselves and offering their children, this is for you. So this morning, uh, we are going to uh, take communion together and uh, allow this moment uh, to be a moment where um, no matter what it is you're going through, no matter what words you said to a loved one, that no lo- you no longer talk to them because of that, or that relationship fell apart and you carry that guilt with you, allow this moment to be a moment where God sets you free. Maybe reconciliation in that relationship is possible. I don't know. But allow this moment to be a moment that God sets you free. Um, And so the way we do communion here is we've got three stations in the front, two here, and then one on the other side of those trees. Um, The two on the edges are gluten-free or have a gluten-free option, I should say. It has both options. This one does not. I'm in the, I only have gluten at my station. Gluten only. Um, but uh, what you'll do is you'll come forward, you'll take the piece of bread and you'll dip it into the juice and take it individually. Um, I really encourage you as you take communion this morning to do so. Take a moment to look around you because we all carry stuff. We all carry stuff. Um, say a prayer for somebody. Yeah, you don't have to know who they are. You know, just, just find somebody and just say a quick prayer for them. Uh, say a prayer for your people, the ones you came with, if you came with people. And then uh, say a quick prayer for yourself and allow God to begin the work of healing you. Um, Would you join me in a word of prayer? Lord, we come to your table uh, with a deep respect, a deep humility, and a deep awareness of um, the cost that our freedom would cost. Lord, you paid the price. We understand that hours before um, you gave your life, Lord, you were in the garden crying out that the cup would pass because you understood what it meant. Uh, Lord, we understand the physical pain. Uh, We understand the gut-wrenching nature of the physical sacrifice, but we will never fully understand um, the weight of a father and son being separated by our sin. And Lord, we do not take that lightly. And so, Lord, we come to the table um, as, uh, as Paul, the Apostle Paul would say, we come to the table as more than conquerors because you loved us first. And so, Lord, would you allow this moment to be a moment where you set us free. Jesus, we pray this in your name. We hope that this week's message has brought you both some challenge and some blessing. For more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, find us on the web at www.southharbor.org or find us on Facebook and Instagram at South Harbor Church. And on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m., you can find our service streamed live on our Facebook page. And so from all of us here at South Harbor and the Harbor Churches, we want to wish you a blessed week.